Good morning, Courtright, for all who are joining us in person here or online. My name is Justin Sitzma, and it is my honor this morning to be preaching from uh, Isaiah chapter 11. So I didn't grow up in a church uh, that celebrated Advent. Um, some of you are like shocking. <gasps> what? Um, but toward the end of my time at my, at my previous church that I was leading at, I started to incorporate some of the elements because I kind of like, it's kind of one of these things where people that didn't grow up with any of these traditions kind of rediscover them. Like, oh, that's cool. Like as if it's like some new cool thing. Um, and so, but honestly, I will say that it wasn't truly something I experienced in its fullness until I came to Courtright. And last year, um, going through the Advent season was really beautiful and powerful for me. And, and a couple weeks ago, in fact, um, I, maybe I was just having an emotional day, but I, uh, the first Sunday of Advent, I was like a bit of an emotional wreck. I was just like constantly just so overwhelmed with the, the thought of the coming of Christ. And it was uh, just a, a beautiful moment for me. And I think especially in the year that um, we've had here, it's, it's just, it's good to have this expectation and hope and joy. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about Advent is that it elicits, it creates this sense of yearning, this desire to experience the incarnation of God in flesh in its fullness. And though each year we experience the reality of Christ's coming in new ways, we are not able, it's not able to fully satisfy us. Because as much as Advent is about Christ's descent to earth as a child 2,000 years ago, it is also about the expectation of Christ's return again. And in fact, those words that we just sang, joy to the world, are often seen more as um, language that is talking about what, what, is, what it's going to look like in the new creation and what it's going to look like when Christ returns again, when the fullness of Christ's kingdom is on earth. And until that day, Advent will always have a little tension to it. We experience its goodness and its beauty, but not maybe in its fullness. We experience Jesus, the child who was born to save, but we have not experienced the fullness yet of what Jesus' kingdom brings. So for now, we experience a bit of a mixed bag of hope and longing, gladness and sorrow pain in some ways, and joy. And we hope again for a new advent, a new coming, where we experience the incarnation completely and fully. This is what the writer is getting at in our passage today in Isaiah chapter 11. This passage, it paints a picture of the Israelites and their current reality, as well as their future hope. But I believe in many ways, it paints a picture of our current reality and as well, our future hope. Let's pray before we read. We pray now, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us in this season of waiting, in this season of watching, in the hoping and the longing. Speak to us in the sorrow, in the sighing, the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days. And walk with us until the day of your coming again. Amen. 
So I'm going to read and then take some time to break it down verse by verse. This is a, a piece of scripture that really lends itself to kind of going through every little bit of it, and that's what we're going to do in just a moment. So Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1, going to verse 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he, what, by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of, uh, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. It's important and worthwhile to remember that this was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And it's, important, and it's an important question we need to ask when we read these messianic texts is, what did the writer hope that the original hearers of these words would take from it? What would they learn from it back then? And the fact is, as Alex shared last week, um, this prophetic writing was written to a specific culture in a specific time. And specifically here, it was to the Israelites who were in a time of exile a time where real and true hope was needed back then, not hundreds of years in the future. Israel wanted and desired a deliverer, someone who would take them from their plight. When the author writes about what seems to be Jesus, it's generally safe to say that the writer did not necessarily have Jesus in mind. We can now look back at these passages, as, as the writers in the New Testament did, as uh, the early church fathers did, uh, and see how Jesus is the culmination. In fact, Jesus himself references back to sections of Isaiah and, and says, this is about me. It is by the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit that these passages were fully and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It's a wild thing to think about this writer not knowing who this Messiah was, and they had lots of preconceived notions about what the person was going to be like. And for us to look back these thousands of years later and realize, wow, this was Jesus. 
The reason that this is important that we unpack, uh, that as we unpack this passage, is that there is a temptation to see these prophetic words that have um, that have some relevance way back then, and maybe some relevance for those who you know we're, we're looking toward Christ, but that they don't really have much relevance for us now. I think that's a danger that we can get into. So I want to squash that this morning just by saying that these words transcend time. And in fact, these words look ahead to a time that is still to come. So these words in some ways are fulfilled through the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. In another way, these words are still being fulfilled, that it is not there. We are not all the way there yet. And we're going to see where that is. So there's just a lot of incredible things to glean and learn from this. So let's jump in. So at the very beginning, and then at the very end, if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to be following along because I'm going to be referencing the text, um, but I want us to make sure that we're kind of able to kind of track with where I'm going. So at the beginning and the end, this, uh, there's this tree image. It gives this image of the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse. And it's meant to invoke this idea of a family tree. We get a picture of King David, who is the son of Jesse. But this image goes far beyond David. The roots go broader and deeper. David, though he was a very deeply flawed king, um, he's often seen in many ways as the archetypal king. He's the, the one that others strove to be like. They wanted to be like him. So this image of the stump of Jesse bearing fruit is meant to invoke messianic, king-like imagery that from the human family line of Jesse, David, etc., would come an even better and greater king. And there's also a sense in which it describes, it uses this word shoot, and that's kind of a, a small, tiny branch coming out of this root. And from this, we can see that the king is coming from an unlikely source. In the case of King David, King David was the youngest son. He was this little scrawny kid that you kind of looked at and said, there's no way he's going to be anything great. And in the same way, um, the implication for the Messiah is that he might not be quite the way that we imagined him. And then as we look at verse 2, we see that the Spirit of the Lord will be on this person. And there are seven qualities listed. Seven um, numbers are very often uh, on purpose in the Bible, and this is no exception. Seven is the number of uh, completion and perfection. And so the first quality here is in the first part of this verse. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is resting upon this Messiah. And then you combine that with wisdom. Sorry, I'll count them with my proper phrase. So the Spirit of the Lord is resting on this person. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. What we have here is a picture of a true and just king, a perfected King David. This is a king who will delight in following the ways of the Lord in every way. A king who will see beyond, this is verse three, who will see beyond what we can see with our eyes and a king who can hear beyond what we can hear with our ears. In other words, this is someone who can discern the hearts and minds of humanity with fairness, with equity, and with impartiality. In verse 4, we get a glimpse of the work that this Messiah King will do. And we have some difficult things to grapple with here. So we're going to take just another minute longer with this particular verse. On one hand, we kind of like the language of this Messiah King bringing justice and equity to the poor. To our modern ears, however, we still struggle even with language about the wicked or evil. 
In this case, it says, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. That is pretty harsh. It is. But at the heart of this verse, at the heart of this is a reimagining and a rebalancing of justice. In the Psalms, you hear language like this quite often. You know, there's pleas from the psalmists for God. God, would you please intervene? My life is at stake here. Even one of the most famous Psalms, you can go and read this one later, and there's quite a, um, an interesting section that we often skip over in like our calls to worship. Uh, Psalm 139. It's this beautiful psalm um, that reminds us that God knew us in our womb uh, before, uh, before, you know, we even, before our parents knew us, God knew us. Before you know, God is reminded or we are reminded of God's wonderful works. But there's this section later on. It says, if only God, you would, let, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. And it goes on and on. You can read it later. The point is what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is that there is this desire for true justice, for the scales of justice to be balanced. God's people are seeing evil prosper. They're seeing their people brought into captivity. They're they're seeing people treated horribly, killed. So then this is a call to justice, and it raises the status of the poor, and it brings the evil low. We're going to get into some more practical implications of that a little bit later on, but I just wanted to take a moment and unpack that. It's a bit more of a challenging verse compared to the rest of it, um, but it's important for us to not glaze over those when we come across them. Moving on, verse 5. This king, it says, will wear righteousness and faithfulness, and it uses the image of the, a belt and a sash. This is, about, uh, this is about, again, righteousness and faithfulness. It makes the ensemble complete. That's what uh, the, the role of those particular garments in the ancient Near East did. It made the garment, it made the outfit complete. It brought stability to it. This king, as this verse would imply, this king is prepared and this king is ready to do the work that he said he will do. Now, in this next section, this is the really kind of fun, cool stuff. So in this next section, we're now confronted with these striking images that show what sort of kingdom this king will usher in. We see these subversions of nature here. The wolf and the leopard and the lion, these powerful predators have become pacified to the point that an infant, a child, is able to lead them. We get this picture of the true understanding of uh, what we call human dominion over animals, that these beasts are somehow pacified and they're able to be treated with the gentleness of a child and not the inhumane treatment of, say, a trophy hunter. And the images continue on. Their cows and bears eat together. The lion is no longer eating meat. And this is not an image just to simply sort of talk about unity. It is, an, it is a transformational image. It's reminding us that in this new creation world, our very natures are transformed. Now, I found some great pictures of similarly unlikely pairs online. And since we could all use a little cuteness in our lives these days, I thought I'd share a few. So we'll just kind of skim through these here. A little hippo and a tortoise. Aww. Everyone's got to, can you all say aw? Aww. A raccoon and a dog. Aww. Aww. 
Now, that, that tiger could be ready, getting ready to eat them. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think the reason we're drawn to these images, both the images in this kind of these word pictures in Isaiah and those pictures themselves is precisely because they subvert what we know of the natural ordering of things. It's powerful and profound. Now, this next image that we have in the scripture, not on the screen, um, is to me the most striking and the most shocking. It's an infant playing near a cobra's den and then a child literally putting their hand in a viper's nest. As a parent, the thought of my child putting her hand anywhere near a viper's den scares me to death. What a helicopter parent I am, I know. <laughs> but some of you might recall last fall. Last fall, that was a long time ago. Um, we did a series working through Genesis. Uh, the early movements, at least, from Genesis 1 through to 11. Now, when we got to Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, um, there was a creature, the first nemesis of humanity. What was it? A serpent. Thank you. And as God curses that serpent, we are given a glimpse of the, an early sign of the gospel. What's, it's what we call the proto-evangelium, the first sign, the first glimmer of good news. In Genesis 3.15, it reads these words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is referring to the snake, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here in Isaiah 11, we get a little callback to this passage here showing that the messianic king as a child is going to pacify the deadly strike of the serpent, the deadly strike, in other words, of sin. And then in verse 9, we have in some ways kind of the heart of this passage, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, through this messianic king, the spirit of the Lord will saturate every space on earth. In the end, this renewed and transformed creation will result in all peoples having not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge of God, a transformative knowledge. And it's a knowledge that, as we see in verse 10, will draw the nations to the Messiah bringing true and good rest to those who seek him. So this, in many ways, it encompasses the entire story of, of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see a callback and a reimagining of God's call for us to have dominion over the creatures in Genesis 1, a callback to the Proto-Evangelium from Genesis 3, but also a picture of the Israelites' current struggle, that circumstances are currently very messy for them. Everything is not as it should be. That was the experience back then of ancient Israel as they received these words, that their reality was not as they imagined or hoped for. And my question for us this morning, is this not still our world today? Is this not still our world today? Yes, Jesus has come and he has given us new life through his death and resurrection and through his incarnation, he has ushered in a new kind of kingdom. 
We have not, however, yet experienced the kingdom in its entirety and its fullness. You might know this. We've talked about this before here. It's this language of the already but not yet kingdom. So Jesus, in, his, in the Gospels, he says the kingdom of God is here, but he also says the kingdom of God is near. So it's this, this, this tension. We don't get to experience the kingdom in its entirety, and all we have to do is look around the world and just see that, the unrest that we see around us. The, even just the, the na- nature itself is not reconciled. We saw that in Pastor Knapp's uh, video about what happened in the Philippines. This already but not yet, it's kind of like March 20th. What, day, what, what happens on March 20th? Spring, theoretically. Theoretically, spring arrives on March 20th. I know that feels a long ways away, but the calendar says that it's springtime. But meanwhile, we usually persist in miserable sub-zero temperatures for quite some time after spring has come. I recall this past May, I was doing a, I was officiating a pandemic wedding. It was snowing. It was May 9th. I was driving. It was on a lake and I was driving, and I was just mad at the world. <laughs> I was just so angry. I was like, Lord, why can't you just bring spring? Like, and I think that there's something in that for us. Like, that's kind of a metaphor for the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. We could also compare it to a pandemic that seems like it is unending and relentless. We know that hope is on the horizon, this week even, good news is coming. But even though, even then, medical professionals have been clear that a, a vaccine is not entirely a silver bullet in and of itself. It is a large piece of the puzzle that is really going to help, but the months ahead will still be a season of waiting, waiting for us to be fully together as a church family. For those who are watching online, we miss you, we love you, we care about you. We're waiting for the day when we can have a holiday feast together with your family and extended family and friends. Waiting for a time when you don't have to feel anxious about walking into a grocery store. Waiting for a music festival in Alabama that you bought tickets for earlier this year that's been pushed back not once, but twice. Oh, wait, that's pretty specific. That's just maybe just me? Okay. This already but not yet kingdom offers us, an opportunity to, offers us an opportunity to be refined by the Holy Spirit in this time, to be shaped and molded closer into the image of God in, the wait, in this waiting. Through both experiences of pain and experiences of joy, we are refined by God working in us. But this already but not yet kingdom is not only passive, but it is active as well. Though we are not bringers of ultimate justice, ultimate restoration, ultimate hope, or ultimate peace, that is the role of Jesus and Jesus alone, we are called as the people of God to be agents of justice, of restoration, of hope, and of peace. We are called in some ways to be signs of life in this already but not yet kingdom. And we can be participants in that today and now. Here's an example of this tension. So back in 2018, 
Uh, there was a black 26-year-old accountant, and his name was Botham Jean. And he was in his apartment. This is a, a, quite a tragic story. He was in his apartment when an off-duty police officer, her name was Amber Geiger, she went into his apartment thinking it was hers. It was like identical layout, all that kind of stuff. She just happened to go into the wrong apartment. And in a tragic moment, in a, in a case of mistaken identity, she pulled out her gun and she shot him and he died shortly thereafter. Now, there's all sorts of complicated bits to this story, including um, racial bias and efforts to defame the, the man who, who was killed. But one image from this story caught the attention of the world. In October of last year, so about a year after um, this happened, Amber Geiger was being sentenced. And the brother of Botham Jean, Brant Jean, he got up and he publicly forgave Amber Geiger, giving her a hug. You'll see a picture here. Even this is complex. Brant, he forgave this woman, this woman who killed his brother. And later on, regarding, he was asked why he did this. And he said this. He said, I want you all to know that I am not a threat, that young black males are not inherently dangerous or criminal. Botham Jean should not have died. And his brother wanted to show our broken and fractured world a different kind of story where people of other skin color are not a threat and where reconciliation is truly possible. But still, even in this tension, both him and his mother did not waver and that they felt that her sentencing was too light. Even amid this story of forgiveness, there is, there is some sense that justice was not fully served, that what happened was unjust and the result was also unjust. This is the kingdom of already but not yet. God has called us to be participants in this sort of world, a world that like we read in Isaiah 11 verse 4, that we, where we see the poor lifted up and the evil brought to justice. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, how are you doing that in your life? In what ways are you seeking the good of those in need? How are you using your resources to bring greater equality and equity to our world? And if you're not at all, why not? What is stopping you? We know that on this side of the kingdom, injustice and evil are going to happen, but we are not helpless. There are things that we can do. God has equipped us to be able to do something about it. Um, at Hope House, downtown Guelph, the Upper Grand District School Board, they used to run a program for high school students called Cadence. It was for kids from challenging home situations or uh, with specific learning challenges that would benefit from an alternative learning environment. And I often was asked to participate in their graduation ceremonies, which were usually very touching, and all of the students would have to get up and share a speech, which was, for many of them, a, a, an enormous feat. And they would often say these words. This was kind of the cornerstone of this program. They said, a leader is someone who looks at the world and says... It doesn't have to be this way. A leader is someone who looks at the world and says, it doesn't have to be this way. 
And we could say that even in a greater way, that this should be true of followers of Jesus. There is work to be done. We are called, in the words of the prophet Micah, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. But I want to be clear. Our call to participate in acts of justice is good and right, and it is a significant part of the Christian life. But we must always remember that the Christian faith is not ultimately about what we have done or what we will do, but about what God has done and what God will do. Isaiah 11 is ultimately about a putting of all things to rights, the eradication of evil and injustice. It's a picture of what the new creation will look like. And while we are called to participate in in the ushering in of this new kingdom, this new creation, we are not ultimately responsible for it. This is what Jesus has done and continues to do. And that Jesus, even as a child, puts his hand in the proverbial viper's nest and pacifies that serpent. And so we put our trust in this little child that this child will lead us, that justice will come, that hope will come, that peace will come, that the world will be made right. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is a perfect example of someone who believed this so plainly. She saw truly that Jesus was the culmination of this in her incredible song, The Magnificat, which you can read in Luke chapter one. And she says these words, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those, this is speaking of God the Father, by the way. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away. She sees that God is doing this mighty work of justice through Jesus, who at this point was a helpless little child, This beautiful subversion can only be the work of God. So this Advent, maybe put our hope in the unexpected, in the anticipation of Jesus' birth and the day when Jesus will come again and put all things to rights. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for these truths from your scripture. We thank you that we can put our ultimate hope in you that we can receive your peace, your goodness, your hope, your joy. May we be people who rest in the justice that you bring, but may we also be people who live to bring forth this kingdom with you at the center. May we just yearn and hope for you in a new and profound way today and for the rest of this Advent season. We pray this in your name. Amen.